Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines in Washington. Thanks for being with us on Balance of Power on Bloomberg TV and radio. The meeting began just before we took air on the radio at noon, Kaylee. It wrapped up about 90 minutes mm -hmm. later. Two issues at hand. Government shutdown, that's four days away, unless they come up with a plan. And funding for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. It's very difficult to tell based on what we heard from Democrats or Republicans leaving that meeting, uh, not including Mitch McConnell, who fled to the Capitol, <laughs> if anything got done. They said it was productive. They said it was intense. They all seemed to be trying to express intense. optimism that a shutdown was going to be avoided. Didn't mm -hmm. necessarily give us much clarity as to how. And something else that Mike Johnson specifically brought up, first thing, was the border. He said he had a frank conversation about President Biden on that in the one-on-one -on -one meeting they had after the other three congressional leaders left the room and are all now presumably leaving the yeah. White House. Interesting but optics here. Interesting optics indeed. Still at the White House, though, is Bloomberg's White House correspondent, Akela Gardner, who is joining us now. So, Akela, obviously there were a number of different subject areas of discussion here. Did the Biden, did President Biden specifically accomplish what he wanted to with this meeting? I think it's too early to say whether he got what he wanted accomplished. At the end of the day, what this meeting really highlighted is there is just multiple issues that are piling up in Washington that are key to President Biden's agenda. You mentioned government funding. All four congressional leaders expressed confidence that they'll be able to avert a government shutdown. That is now just three days away. That March 1st deadline that will shut down at least partially the government, including commerce, the Education Department, Justice Department. So a huge segment that would affect hundreds of workers here. But all of them expressed resolve that they will be able to reach an agreement. What is much less clear is whether they'll be able to reach agreement on Ukraine, on funding for Israel, on Indo-Pacific. Um, those are all things that are still left up, up to these yeah. lawmakers to decide. I'm loving this behind-the-scenes view of Akela Gardner at the White House for our viewers on <laughs> Bloomberg TV and YouTube. Akela is standing right where the principals were a couple of moments ago. This is where the stakeout happens, right in front of that West Wing portico. Akela, you are the newsmaker now. I'm curious if you know, <laughs> did Mike Johnson actually leave the building? He did leave the building. We don't know if he had ice cream with President Biden, but he did get that one-on-one -on -one meeting that he's been <laughs> asking for and that the White House has dismissed for a really long time. And really, this meeting comes at a time where there's been clear tension between these two leaders, between Speaker Johnson and President Biden, because the White House has just, frankly, not seen him as a sincere negotiator. They feel like they have met his demands to tie border funding to Ukraine and Israel. And yet he got what he wanted today. And we'll see if that is actually going to lead to results and whether this thing can get passed. Well, and of course, Mike Johnson talking about the border as he emerged, talking about how America's needs need to be put first, maybe over the needs of allies like Israel and Ukraine. But President Biden himself is making a trip to the border later this week on Thursday. What's his objective going to be if no executive actions come in tandem with that meeting or that visit rather? You know, that was that was a really interesting part of this discussion because we heard from, speak, for, from Senator Schumer that he believes that the President Biden does not have the legal authorities to do some executive action, whether that's 
an emergency or declaration, what have you. He does not believe that the president has those authorities. And that is also what we've heard from the White House as well. And yet you still have Speaker Johnson saying he wants Biden to take executive action now. That is a clear tension here. But Biden heads to the border on Thursday at the same day as Donald Trump and really highlighting how much of a political liability this has become. Bloomberg News and Morning Consult polling continues to show immigration is rising as a top priority, specifically among Republicans. But Speaker Johnson said mm-hmm. he's heard from voters across the political party that this is an issue that they're seeing in their cities. Michaela, are you on pool duty today? Were you in the Oval Office for that brief period of time? I, I am. And it's actually raining outside. <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, so you're getting wet for us as well. So you were in there. Chuck Schumer said it was intense. What did he mean? It's hard to say. I mean, we were not a part of those discussions. It was a closed door meeting. But that is a huge statement to hear from from the senator, because, of course, he's been in Washington for many years. And he said it's one of the most intense discussions that he has been a part of. Hmm. But again, that just shows how many issues are just piling up. And the frustration has to be huge for him as the majority leader, because the Senate has now passed two different legislations one tying all of these abroad priorities to the border and one without it. He is just, yeah. frankly, just caught in a stalemate here. And he's not able to get some of these bills that have just been taken painstaking months of negotiations through the House. Johnson has just refused to put those to a vote. And so we'll see what happens next after this meeting. This is incredible. <laughs> Zooming with a Kayla live from the White House. Can we make this a regular? We got to choose a star. We have to do <laughs> this on the regular. Kayla, thank you so much for stopping down. She's on pool duty, but still with us here on Balance of Power. White House correspondent for Bloomberg, Kayla Gardner. Many thanks for bringing us inside the perimeter there on the driveway. They don't let us walk around there with cameras. That's a special moment with a Kayla. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Very short remarks from the House Speaker Mike Johnson after this meeting, not just with the other big congressional leaders at the White House, but afterward, a one-on-one sit-down, Joe, with President Biden himself, in which the House Speaker said he brought up the issue of the border. He says America's needs need to be put first, have to have an open uh, talk about the open border. He says the other big priority is funding of the government. And he also echoed the optimism we heard from Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries that he does believe we can get to an agreement to avoid a shutdown. Of course, the partial shutdown would begin this Friday. So everyone said what they needed to say. I still don't have an idea of how that went in there. I have to be perfectly honest with you. Mitch McConnell left him alone. Yeah, I, I don't, went back I, to the Capitol. This feels a little bit weird to me. Uh, as we bring in uh, Rohit Kumar, uh, principal co-leader of the Washington National Tax Service at PwC, spent uh, some time, uh, in fact, a good chunk of time working for Mitch McConnell and can help us understand the behind-the-scenes conversations that are happening when deadlines are approaching and deals are being made or not. In the case of today, Rohit, it's great to see you. You surprised your old boss, went back to the Capitol on his own today. Does that tell us how much... Uh, ground there is between these two, the gap between these two Republicans when it comes to the matter of Ukraine? So not particularly surprised because the gap was known going in. And look, I I hate to burst anybody's bubble about what happens in these meetings, but I, I participated in probably several dozen Oval Office meetings during my time working on Capitol Hill. I can't remember yeah. a single one where I felt like we really advanced the ball. Like we walked to that meeting, we're like, wow, we really achieved something today. Right. It just tends to be the same talking points you see on the House and Senate floor 
transmitted in private, um, you know, in the Oval Office. No one's going to make a big concession um, in that room. Those breakthroughs, those negotiation breakthroughs, they happen in smaller rooms, in one-on-one -on -one negotiations, typically in the Capitol, um, not in yeah. the Oval Office. So every Oval Office meeting I went to was just like an hour or two of um, couldn't have my phone, was going to be horribly behind on email, and we would just read our talking <laughs> points to one another and then go back and, you know, get back to the real work. Well, Mike Johnson suggested that work to avoid a shutdown has been happening around the clock, even though the House isn't even back in session yet. They all return tomorrow, at which point there will be about 72 legislative hours left to avert a shutdown. Do you believe their optimism on the idea that they're getting close to something that would avert a shutdown? Yeah, so that optimism is actually um, it's consistent with what I've been hearing in my own conversations, which is that there really is a mm -hmm. sense that we're going to get there. Um, and avoid a shutdown. How? It's uh, I, I think. Um, well, I mean, look, you got to pass um, either you're going to pass the four appropriations bills that expire um, on the first, or you're going to have to have a temporary continuing resolution. And I know in the past the speaker has said no continuing resolutions, but yet we still have managed to do them in one form or another. And I think, look, at root, everyone understands that nothing is achieved by a shutdown. I have been a part of a number of shutdown exercises. I've witnessed them from afar. I can't think of a single one where, as a result of the shutdown, somebody got something that they weren't going to get already, that they somehow gained leverage in the negotiation. In fact, if anything, in shutdowns, especially the ones that go longer than a couple of days, you tend to lose leverage. You end up getting less than you could have gotten on the front end because the, the shutdown is a self-inflicted political injury. As my old boss, Senator McConnell, has said repeatedly, Republicans kind of own the brand on shutdowns and not to their advantage, but largely to their detriment. And so I think most people understand, uh, not all to be clear, but most understand that you actually don't get much out of a shutdown. And if anything, you might lose something. Hmm. Rohit, having been uh, in the room for a couple of these, to your point, as the deputy chief of staff to the leader, uh, domestic policy director, uh, you're giving us a sense of what you made of the language coming out of this. But I wonder your thoughts on what the real priorities were. Mike Johnson came out first and foremost talking about the border. Was this a meeting about Ukraine or about a government shutdown? Look, I mean, once you're in the room, you're talking about everything. But at some level, yeah. no huge surprise that Speaker Johnson would come out and talk about immigration and talk about the border. Right. All the all the sort of public polling would suggest that immigration is top of mind for voters. So that makes perfect sense. It's something that Republicans have, have cared deeply about for you know, this is not like a, a new revelation that Republicans care about this issue. Um, and so what that tells me is, look, of all of the things that are floating around um, in the government funding conversation, immigration is where uh, Speaker Johnson is kind of, you know, putting his chips in the middle. And so I would be looking and paying attention to what, if any, concessions are made, negotiations are had around immigration, whether that and interestingly, uh, he particularly called out the president and the ability for the president to engage in his own executive action, something which has been clearly what's well, been reported that the administration is considering anyway. So I would be looking for uh, money uh, on immigration and maybe some policy, but maybe that policy is not legislative policy, but executive action policy. There's something else I'd like to ask you about, given your experience with uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Rohit, which is that there's been reporting this week that there are back-channel efforts underway to secure McConnell's endorsement of former President Trump. Of course, we've seen pretty much all of the Senate leadership at this point do so, but 
Trump is someone that McConnell has called practically and morally responsible for what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. He hasn't exactly been shy about his disdain for some of the former president's uh, policies, actions, even words he's spoken against McConnell's wife. Does it surprise you that McConnell would consider endorsing Trump at this point? Yeah, so look, I mean, the one thing I will say is that uh, Leader McConnell has been consistent that he would endorse and support the Republican nominee for president. And so um, despite whatever else he has said about former President Trump, he's also said he would endorse the Republican nominee. And to the extent that uh, former President Trump ends up being the Republican nominee, um, you know, that would pave a path for that potentially to happen. I think it's too soon to say for sure which way this is going to go or how this is all going to shake out. Uh, But he has been clear that he would report the support the Republican nominee for president. There's a lot there uh, considering the impact that Donald Trump could have on this very issue of Ukraine. Where are you on Ukraine funding, Rohit? We've kind of danced around this a little bit. Is that something that will be addressed once the shutdown is either avoided or cleared somehow? Yeah, I mean, look, Speaker Johnson alluded to this. He said, we're looking at all options. They're clearly looking for a a third way, right? Way one would be the Senate bill. Way two would be to do nothing. And way three would be to find some other version of compromise legislation. Again, it's clear immigration is top of mind. And while there was an effort that ultimately failed in the Senate to, you know, resolve that issue, maybe the House can find, you know, a different approach that is more to the liking of House Republicans that that can pass. But I, I don't think this issue... Um, is going away. Remember, it's not just Ukraine funding. It's also Israel funding. Right. It's also there's some Taiwan money uh, in there as well. So there's there's more to it mm-hmm. than Ukraine, even though Ukraine has been kind of dominating the political headlines. All right. Rohit Kumar now of PwC, but of course, someone who has in the past worked very closely with Senator Mitch McConnell. Thank you so much for your time. There's a lot to digest here from Ukraine mm-hmm. to the border to avoiding a government shutdown. And we're going to have more on that with our political panel coming up, Joe. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Let's bring you inside the West Wing. (laughs) You're such a Washingtonian. To the Oval Office, just, just a sense of what it was like to be in the room. You've got the four congressional leaders and the president and vice president at the fireplace. Let's take a look. And, uh, and Ukraine, I think the need is urgent. I hope we can speak to that a little bit. And uh, I think the consequences of inaction every day in Ukraine are dire. I've been speaking to some of our, our G7 partners. And- Referring to the dire needs in Ukraine, if you're with us on the radio, showing images of a packed Oval Office with the press pool in there. They were quickly escorted out to allow that meeting to happen. Kaylee, it lasted about 90 minutes from our count. Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty quick, all things considered, relatively mm-hmm. on time, which this isn't always the out. case. Yeah. No, they weren't going to waste any more time together in each other's presences than perhaps absolutely necessary. But we are always glad to have Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano in our presence, at least virtually, Bloomberg's politics contributors who are joining us now. Rick, Jeannie, we were just speaking with Rohit Kumar, who used to work in McConnell's office, helped negotiate the debt uh, ceiling deal back in 2011. He told us, look, nothing really happens in these Oval Office meetings. Everybody goes back to huddle in, in rooms at the Capitol, and that's really where things get hammered out. Jeannie, what was the point of today, if nothing concrete emerged from it? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I myself didn't expect much productive out of it. I think the president and had an interest in inviting everyone to the White House to show that he is on top of this. And of course, when you get an invitation to the White House, you can't refuse it. So off they all went. And, you know, from that perspective, I do think this is a self-inflicted wound on the part of the Republicans. You know, Joe Biden wants to run against this do-nothing Congress. And he wants to continue to say right through the State of the Union coming up next week that they just can't get things done. You can't turn the whole government over to these folks because they can't get anything done. And this just plays into his hands, including the fact that Mitch McConnell didn't go out with his own party member that he decided to head right back to Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. Who can blame him? This is a self-enforced, self-inflicted error on the part of the Republicans. You need to pass the budget there's no big policy disagreement. This is all politics, and that is not going to play with the American public. So I think it was a small win for the president and a big loss for the Republicans in the House. Hmm. Rick, you spoke earlier about the triangulating against uh, Mike Johnson inside that meeting. Everyone but Mike Johnson uh, seems to be rowing in the same direction. Did Mitch McConnell's decision to head back to the Capitol leave him alone in the driveway speak to that? Sure. Uh, Mitch McConnell didn't want to put him in the position of having to actually disagree with Mitch McConnell, because if Mitch McConnell stood there, he'd sound more like the majority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, uh, because they actually don't disagree on how to fund government, how to fund Ukraine and what to do about the border. So um, he did him a favor by saying, you know what, uh, rather than cause problems for you as the uh, seasoned Republican here, I'm just going to let you walk out there on your own and I'll head back to the office. So um, uh, but yes, this was all about pointing the finger at the one person who's standing in the way of a border deal, of a supplemental deal, of a budget deal. Everybody else has agreement on those things, except for Mike Johnson and the Republican caucus in the Senate or in the House. So um, I think Biden accomplished that. Uh, the fact that they had the speaker walk out on his own and, and basically reiterate those talking points uh, in contrast to everybody else who was at that meeting. Uh, isolates him, shows him how alone he is, and puts all the onus on progress on him. Of course, as we have the conversation related to the supplemental funding package, it was not just Ukraine that we heard the president raise, but Israel funding as well, because that is a component here. And we know that that potentially could mean that any package in the House could lose support, not just on the Republican side, but on the Democratic side as well. And this is something we're probably likely to see in the Michigan primary, which takes place today. There's a big effort underway, supported by Arab Muslim Americans to vote uncommitted rather than for President Biden because of his stance on being supportive of Israel in despite perhaps what is happening in Palestine and the high civilian death toll. But this is actually something he spoke about with Seth Meyers in New York yesterday, talking up the prospect of a ceasefire in the not-so-distant future. Take a listen to the president. Can you give us a sense of when you think that ceasefire will start? Well, I hope by the beginning of the weekend. I mean, the end of the weekend. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. So next Monday, a ceasefire, Jeannie, when there is a primary in Michigan today. Think this timing's a coincidence? 
No, no coincidence at all. The Monday's no coincidence. He's staring straight down the State of the Union. I think the one unfortunate aspect of that, you know, he's right to say he's hoping we get there. The one unfortunate aspect is the way that video rolls out with the ice cream and the sunglasses. I don't think that's the look you should be portraying when you're talking about something that your constituents, many of them feel, is an absolute travesty of what is going on in Gaza, according to many of those people who are going to be voting today. I don't think you want to address that in terms of the number of deaths and everything else with sunglasses and ice cream. So that I don't understand. But he is, you know, hoping, of course, that we get at least a temporary ceasefire. And that is what the president is banking on. And if it comes with the State of the Union week, all the better for the administration and the campaign. So, Rick, is the State of the Union the real deadline for everything here? We're going to have a ceasefire by then. Maybe we'll have a government funding deal, some action on Ukraine. Maybe we even see an executive action on the border that we've reported the president is considering. A lot could happen between now and next Thursday. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, some of those things we're waiting on right now. Uh, the uh, If there's going to be executive border action, you'd think they'd do it before uh, or during the President Biden's trip to the border on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, want to remind everybody, we thought we had a uh, ceasefire deal over a week ago uh, that fell apart. So I think they're trying to get one as soon as they can. Whether that had anything to do with Michigan's primary today, probably not. It's just yeah. not that important to the president. But for sure, he wants to get these things settled and done before he has to uh, give the State of the Union. And that is a real deadline. Well, and it's just coming up nine days from now. A lot, obviously, still to happen in the interim, and perhaps a temporary ceasefire beginning would be one of those things. But, Rick, as we think about that issue, specifically how it's showing up in Michigan and the idea that a, a significant portion, perhaps, of a certain demographic is not happy with the way the president is handling this issue, you could also add to the list of young people who are turning away from the president polling suggests, and the idea that manufacturing, which is a big issue in Michigan, Biden has specifically went to automotive labor and supporting the unions there. They don't necessarily seem to be more for him than for Trump as a result. Just how many different Democrat demographic issues could be showing up for Biden in Michigan, not just in this primary, but as we look ahead to the general election to come? Yeah, no, I mean, Michigan is a real tightrope for for Joe Biden. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you've got over 100,000 Arab Americans who live in Dearborn. That's in Wayne County. He won Wayne County by 68 uh, percent in 2020. But the reality is uh, that's probably too little. He only won the entire election against uh, Donald Trump by 150,000. So you can imagine mm-hmm. if those Arab Americans sit home, he's got a problem. Uh, and the reality is that... Um, Uh, No state gives you more of a clear picture of the demographics of this election coming up than Michigan, where almost 100 percent of the vote for Joe Biden's coming out of the cities and 100 percent of the vote for Donald Trump comes out of the counties. Donald Trump will win virtually all the counties. There'll only be a dozen counties uh, that Joe Biden win, but it'll be 80 percent of the vote total. So, uh, you know, it's it's one of these situations that mirrors the country right now. And it's worth watching. And and frankly, I can't wait for the next Bloomberg poll to come out so that we can see another trend uh, as far as uh, what's happening in Michigan for the general election. It's but days away. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, great talk. Thanks for being with us on Breaking News today. We can always count on our Bloomberg politics contributors here on Balance of Power. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington alongside Kaylee Lines. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. 
Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. We've also got something going on today in Michigan called a presidential primary, and this is a big Joe Biden story. Yes, of course, there's a Republican primary there, and they're going to have a caucus this weekend, and Donald Trump's going to win it, and this is all we're hearing. But Joe Biden has got a a very specific challenge going on right now, and it brings us back to his policy in Israel and Gaza. We've talked about it uh, here before. There's an abandoned Biden campaign. This is a Democrat campaign in Michigan. There's also a Listen to Michigan campaign in which some folks like uh, Congresswoman Tlaib are urging Democrats to vote uncommitted. And we wanted to talk to Caitlin Legacki about this, the partner at Four Corners Public Affairs, one of our Democratic analysts here on Balance of Power, former advisor, senior advisor to Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Caitlin, it's good to have you back. How much of a liability is this for Joe Biden as opposed to a media sensation? I think by and large, it's a media sensation. Obviously, Michigan is the one state where Biden's Middle East policy is uh, has the most opportunity to become an issue. Um, but I think, you know, what the folks at the Biden campaign are going to do is they're going to look at what comes out of tonight and then view that as an opportunity to go out and identify the voters that they need to win back. And so it's actually a huge trove of data for them to go and understand what the state of the play is there. Um, but no, I would also remind you that Barack Obama in 2012, when he was running unopposed, also got something like 12% in uncommitted hmm. votes. So, hmm. uh, I personally would be more concerned if if he was losing 40 percent of Democrats the way that Donald Trump is losing 40 percent of Republicans to Nikki Haley. Um, so, you know, I think they're going to be very measured about it over in, at the Biden campaign and they're going to see what the data tells them and then go from there. Well, it certainly does not seem to be a coincidence, uh, Caitlin, that we got the news from Joe Biden that we got last evening. Uh, he talked about it a bit on Seth Meyers uh, TV show. Uh, but he was also asked by reporters uh, while he's eating an ice cream cone about Israel. Uh, and the the quote was pretty interesting, as he suggests that there will be a ceasefire announced by Monday. He says his national security advisor tells him, quote, we're close. We're not done yet. My hope is by Monday we'll have a ceasefire. Would he have said that yesterday if it weren't the day before Michigan? Oh, I think he only said it because he was at, uh, you know, he is the kind of guy that uh, answers questions from reporters when they ask them. Uh, I'm sure that was not a planned, you know, release no. in a an ice cream parlor from the White House. But um, <laughs> no, you know, I, I think that the Biden White House has actually worked very hard to be very responsible about how they handle the situation. Really more a coincidence of timing than anything else. Mm hmm. Interesting line from Andy Levin, the former congressman. He used to come on this broadcast pretty often. Democrat, big Joe Biden ally, helped him with Build Back Better infrastructure, the IRA, and all the rest of it. He is supporting the uncommitted campaign. And he says, Joe Biden's problem is not a political problem. It is a policy problem. Caitlin, what does he mean by that? I, I think that there are a number of Muslim Americans, especially in Michigan, who feel that the Biden administration has not done enough to advocate for the civilians in Gaza. Uh, that's what uh, Congressman Levin means. Um, and I think what it also means is that 
in order for the Biden campaign and the Biden administration to, to really communicate with these voters and show that they've been heard, it is going to require some sort of policy shift in terms of either walking a tougher line with Prime Minister Netanyahu, doing uh, being more forceful about getting uh, aid into Gaza um, and supporting those humanitarian reliefs. And so I, I agree, you know, the, the fact of the matter is um, there are fundamental concerns within this community about how Israel is conducting itself in Gaza. Uh, and the Biden White House is going to have to figure out how do they address those concerns, make sure that um, civilians are taken care of, while also staying close enough to Israel to prevent this from spilling out into other countries in the region, which is really the, the biggest concern for a lot of folks. Well, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, Caitlin, but when when you talk policy, the the public formal stated policy of this administration is that Israel's gone over the top, that there's a that that restraint should be part of the response here, that a proportionate response should be delivered. But we're not seeing it, of course. Should should Joe Biden be punished for for what Israel is doing without his approval? I, I don't believe so. I also think that you know, one of the hardest things in politics is to prove a negative. And hmm. what Joe Biden has done over the last, gosh, five months now, um, is really prevent a much uglier, much deadlier regional conflict from breaking out. Um, I, I think that, you know, the Biden administration has shifted um, and they've strengthened their language as it, as it comes to Netanyahu and how Israel is, is conducting the war in Gaza. But we also do have to remember that there are hundreds of Israeli citizens that are still being held hostage uh, by a terrorist organization, and we do need to get them home as well. And so it's a, it's a very delicate balancing act to make sure that we get those folks home um, without incurring any additional unnecessary civilian casualties. Yeah, well, the idea here would be that Israel halts the offensive in Gaza uh, in time for Ramadan in exchange for, or as they say, if a deal is reached for the release of the more than 100 remaining hostages, that would be a pretty important moment. For Joe Biden, in the meantime, domestically here, Caitlin Legacki, what does he do in the days ahead? We're going to be counting uncommitted votes in Michigan tomorrow. That's going to be part of the narrative. Questions about his age, questions about whether he can beat Donald Trump in a general election. What's the strategy for the weeks ahead? I think, you know, it's honestly keep calm and carry on. We hmm. have seen the economy continue to get stronger. Um, the, the president and the White House are, again, the adults in the room when it comes to this looming government shutdown. Uh, they've been very responsible, very conciliatory towards Republicans trying to find compromises. Um, and all of this is going to build to the State of the Union in a couple of weeks, which is really going to be. Uh, the biggest platform that the president has between now and the election uh, to both make a case for what he's done, uh, to make a case for what he wants to do in a new term, and then also to drive that contrast when you look at Republicans in the House uh, who, who simply can't get it together to fund the government, they won't take yes for an answer. Or when you look at Donald Trump and you look at the Supreme Court ruling out of Alabama banning IVF, there are two very different visions for America that we're discussing, and, and Biden's going to use the State of the Union to make that case. The State of the Union is divided? It might be right now, 
But can if he anyone say that? is committed I'm to... I'm out of time, Caitlin, but can he say that next week? He will not, because if anyone's going to work harder to pull it back together, it's Joe Biden. <laughs> Something uh, attractive about the truth. I tell you what, go up there, do a 15-minute speech, be honest about it. I feel like it would be embraced. Ka- uh, Caitlin, it's great to see you. Legaki, normally with us on our panel, we wanted to drill down on what was happening in Michigan today from Four Corners Public Affairs. Great insights. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.